0: John wants the early church to know that they, and ultimately we, belong to something bigger than themselves. God's dreams for the world expand centuries, cultures, and continents. A reading from the Revelation to John, chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. After this, I looked. And there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Robed in white with branches in their hands, they cried out loud, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne, And to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these robed in white? And where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here ends the third reading.
1: Well, now, loving, present God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together in this sanctuary be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, sisters and brothers, grace to you this morning and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. We've arrived at the season of Advent together Advent is one of those religious-sounding words that you don't hear much outside of church. But as I wrote to you in our midweek email update this week, Advent simply means the coming. Uh, The spirit of Advent is a spirit of expectation and longing. And more, really, than getting ready for Christmas, Advent is about getting ready for Christ, who came to us once in the form of a child— And whose coming again will bring about the fulfillment of God's loving intentions for all of creation. And preparing ourselves, our hearts, and our world for that coming is the focus of Advent. Advent also is a season for attending to the promises of God. God has made some beautiful promises to us. Christian faith lives and moves beneath a long arc of promises, like the promise of a child who would save us from our sins and make us free. That's a promise that stands behind us. Some of the promises of God now move beside us. Therefore, our present journey promises such as, come to me all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. This and many others like it are for our journey now, and we lean into them as we make our way in this weary world. But some of the promises are waving at us from far ahead. And these promises coming from a distant future are so wrapped in mystery and so beyond our comprehension and so altogether beautiful that whenever Scripture talks about them, it reaches for poetry as with the words Lilia read just now, about a great multitude gathered around the throne of God who wipes away every tear from our eyes. And so in this season of Advent, we are gathering this year around the promises. And as some of you may know, in Advent, it's customary always to begin at the end. On the first Sunday of Advent, we always perk up our ears to hear the promises of God coming from the future. And only after we've looked ahead do we then look back over our shoulders to the child in the manger and recognize Christ as the clue to everything that awaits us. After all, knowing how a story ends really helps us to live our part in the meantime. Endings are very, very important. In 1851, Herman Melville finished his epic novel, Moby Dick. Did you know that the British publisher of Moby Dick, Harper & Brothers, when they went to press, accidentally left out the book's ending, the epilogue? And so all the British readers found themselves terribly confused because without the ending, there was no explanation of how, and this is a spoiler alert, Ishmael, the narrator, lived to tell the story. Because unless you read the epilogue, it seems like he dies at the end with everybody on ship. And so the reviews from the British critics were scathing and ultimately very costly to Melville, because many American newspaper editors just reprinted the British reviews without actually reading the American version of Moby Dick, which did include the ending. And the book flopped miserably, partly because of those British reviews. And as a writer, Herman Melville never recovered. By the time of his death at 72, he had become virtually forgotten as a writer. And the New York Times didn't even get his name right in the obituary. Endings are important. Endings matter. And so we're listening this morning to a promise voiced in the final pages of our Bible. Revelation is a pastoral letter written at the end of the first century by John of Patmos, a pastor, prophet, poet. And John was writing to particular Christians living in a time of great conflict and persecution. And and when he wrote this letter to them, he meant for the thing to be read aloud and to be heard all at once in worship services of churches along the western coast of what is now Turkey. There really is some difficulty in understanding Revelation, to put it mildly, but It contains a vital message for the church today, and the Spirit speaks to us in these pages. And so, would you listen again to this voice coming from ahead of us? I saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and tribe robed in white and gathered around the throne of God. They had come through the great ordeal. And wash their robes white in the blood of the lamb. The one at the center of the throne shall be their shelter. And they shall hunger no more and thirst no more. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Would you let yourself for just a moment step inside this mysterious vision? I want to invite you for just a minute to resist for now the urge to dissect these words and instead simply to let them swirl around in your ears for a while. The poets who are sitting in the room today are going to understand exactly what I'm talking about. Billy Collins after years of trying to help students love the art of poetry, wrote this little gem of a poem that pokes good-natured fun at our hyper-analytical tendency sometimes. And this is what he says. He said, I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse inside a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. So, this morning, let's resist the temptation to torture a confession out of these words from Revelation and simply walk through the door it's opening for us, feeling the walls for a light switch. And here's how the vision begins the mist clears. And before us is a great crowd as far as the eye can see. Too many to count, says the narrator, from every nation and tribe, all languages and races. In other words, there's a lot of people there who don't look all that much like us, don't sound like us. And if we're scanning the heavenly banquet table for our group, we won't find it. Because in this place, all our differences count for diddly. Finally, in this place, our differences cease to divide us. Hallelujah. But all the people in this crowd have this thing in common. They're all toward, turned toward a throne. And on the throne is the eternal creator of all. Like a billion planets orbiting a bright sun, they've all come to be gathered to God. And where have they come from? From the great ordeal, says our guide. See, Revelation assumes that bearing witness to the gospel of Christ will bring believers into direct conflict with the powers of empire. See, contrary to interpretations of Revelation like those evident in the Left Behind book series in which all the good people get taken up into heaven before the ordeal begins, John is pointing out to us that those who publicly proclaim the power of the gospel to confront evil wherever it is found inevitably encounter tribulation rather than escape it. And so... They've been put to the test, we're told. They've gone through the fire and have come through it. And now they're all robed in white, all of them now, no rags for some and tuxedos for others. They're all clothed in the very same love. And what are they doing around that throne? They're worshiping. John says they are worshiping God day and night. And as I imagine, no one's looking at their watches or thinking about lunch. No one's frustrated at the preacher who went on too long or that they sang six verses of the hymn. And here, nobody cares a hoot about traditional versus contemporary. They're too busy soaring into passion. They're lost in awe and wonder, making music with all their hearts and sending it up to the one on the throne. It's a beautiful vision, but that's not how the vision ends. As with so much of our story with God, we're left not with what they are giving, but with what God is giving to them. The one seated on the throne, it says, will shelter them all. Everybody gets a safe place. And they'll never again know what hunger is or thirst, because in that place there's no such thing as an unmet need. And the lamb at the center is leading them by the hand to springs of life and eternal refreshment. Christ, their companion, is walking them into wholeness and never-ending joy. And finally, this beautiful image. Reaching for them from the throne is an outstretched hand. How do you imagine the hand of God? Is it youthful and vigorous and strong? Is it elderly and worn and tired from holding the world? And what would you think the hand of God would be doing here? Is it a hand of welcome? Is it a hand of blessing? Is it a dismissive wave? Is the hand raised to strike? In this vision, none of those The hand that emerges from the throne is reaching for the tears on every face and wiping them away forever. My goodness. Do you long for the day when all the hurt will be finished and all the tears will be done? This may be the deepest need of every human heart to know that one day it's going to be all right. This is at least part of the gift we're trying to offer a little more than two weeks from now at Blue Christmas. For people, including some of us in this room, who are tired or sad or grieving, we're pointing to the source of our hope. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can you hear the promise in those words? And could you let them come and put a hand on your own shoulder today for everything that has made you cry? It's grief and loss that make us cry, but in that place, all grief and sadness are finally fully comforted. It's loneliness that makes us cry, but in that place, no one is alone. It's shame that makes us cry, but in that place, no one is ashamed anymore. It's exhaustion that makes us cry, but in that place is the most delicious rest. It's injustice and violence that make us cry. But in that place, everything gets realigned and made right. And there's peace there like we have never known here. It's the weight of our limits and our sin and the weight of death that make us cry here. But in that place is freedom, perfect freedom at last. Thanks be to God. And with that, the vision ends. And here we are back in our own time, back in this sanctuary And some of us, after hearing it, will wonder if it's a dream we've been sitting in here, or might it be possible that this is, in fact, the only language in which we can hear it, the very promise of God that we do have a home. One day, it will all be different, and we yearn for that. We wait for that. And yet, here's one more great piece of news for us today. God is here now. Eternal life isn't some deferred payment far in the future. Jesus himself said, this is eternal life, that people may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, with Christ, your now matters too. God cares not only for the tears to be wiped away someday, but about the tears you happen to be crying now about the loneliness you're feeling now about the shame or sadness or anxiety or addiction that are killing you now. One day love will bring everything into health and wholeness. And part of what it means to be God's children now is to long for that day and look for that day also, though, to lift up our eyes this day and take the hand of the one who always has been reaching, the hand of the one who is our home. And so, gracious God, present God, reaching God, you are our home. And we thank you for your presence now and for love that never stops reaching for us. So help us now to reach back for you in all kinds of ways. In Christ, we ask this. on that. Well, friends, as you let your